You've got to be selfish about your own mental health. You've got to be selfish about it. I'm ruthless about this because I know where I'm going to be otherwise. People go, oh, I'm there for my wife. You hear it time and time again. Well, I'm there for my wife. Well, you're an idiot then because you're going to be hanging in your garage in three weeks' time. Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. Joining me for this episode is retired Royal Air Force fighter pilot and senior flying instructor, squadron leader, Tim Davies. Tim runs a performance coaching and consultancy company called Fast Jet Performance, and he's also well known for his vibrant YouTube channel of the same name, where the truth bombs come thick and fast. I reached out to Tim recently to discuss some of the ways in which stress can impact those in high-performing roles and some of the coping strategies that he teaches. Tim was gracious enough to accept my invitation, which is not that common to be honest. Tim's a very charismatic and engaging gentleman and was very generous with his time in answering my rambling questions. We did the interview as a video on Zoom, so the audio quality is not quite the same as it normally is, and if you want to check that video out, have a look in the show notes and you'll see there's a link there which will take you to YouTube. Otherwise, you can stick around here for the rest of the conversation. It's quite a long one and Tim goes into some detail about his career and some of the challenges he faced and we also discuss the psychology of the aviator and I share a little of my own experience. Towards the end of the episode we do touch on some pretty heavy topics including what you just heard in that opening soundbite and while I have taken Tim's comments slightly out of context it's important to note that his point is that if you don't focus on your own mental health first you won't be there for the people you love and that love you. Anyway, I really enjoyed the conversation, but you can decide for yourself. Here is the enigmatic Tim Davies. If you just introduce yourself and give us a little bit of background about how you ended up in the Navy, the RAF, and subsequently what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So my name is Tim Davies, and I was um, a flying instructor in the Royal Air Force uh, for the last decade. And I've been in the Royal Air Force and the Navy flying fast jets or fighter jets for about 20 years. I left about two years ago. Um, my career history, really, I, I joined the Navy uh, out of university, my academic history was pretty poor. I failed my A-levels, had to do an H&D, which is a high national diploma in engineering. And then I went and did a degree for a couple of years in, um, I think it was manual, oh, mechanical engineering, I think it was. And either way, joined the Navy after university as a pilot. And then after five years of flying training and some sea time, our sea harrier was decommissioned by the government. It was getting a bit old. And so I had nothing to fly. So the Air Force took me across with about nine other guys, in fact, and we all went and flew Air Force aircraft. I went and flew the Tornado GL4 in Iraq mm-hmm. uh, on a squadron in Lossiemouth and then did that for about five years and then eventually went into flying training where I stayed for the rest of my career with a very brief stint at the end where I was also in a requirement space, in a desk space in Bristol and flying jets part-time, but I flew an aircraft called the Hawk that the Red Arrows fly and then its uh, successor, the Hawk T2, Hawk T1, then Hawk T2, which is an updated variant of that, and I was responsible for all the flying training and standards on that squadron, which had 28 aircraft. Um, mm. And now I've left and I, I now do a variety of things. I, I portfolio work, but I, I'm very much interested in mental health, especially men's mental health. And I run a, a course called the Spin Recovery, a spin recovery course for, for men going through transitional periods, which tends to be what you would define as midlife crisis. And I also do individual work with men and women um, mm. on a, something called the Power Hour. But it's, it's really kind of... Uh, it's deep motivational stuff and it's holding people to account, David, to be honest. And, and some people that resonates with and some people it doesn't, but mm. that's where I am at the moment. 
Yeah, fantastic. Um, we were talking before about um, maybe being a bit of a square peg in a round hole at times in your career. Um, does How much of that comes from having joined the Navy first? Was there quite a cultural shift when you um, went into the Air Force that you had to um, become sort of really uh, newly conditioned into that role? Was there some resentment or were you always looked upon as the red-headed stepchild uh, as a former Navy um, pilot? That's funny, isn't it? Yeah, no, they're very different actually. The Navy and the Air Force are very different. Remember, the Navy is this is this goes. We could we could we could look at this with America culture wars at the moment as well. It's very similar. So the Navy has a the Navy is steeped in history. Obviously, we live on an island, so we're surrounded by water, aren't we? So the Navy's always been there. It's a senior service um, in the United Kingdom for a reason because it, it has always been there. And when you're in the Navy, a pilot's are kind of like the lowest of the low. In the Navy, um, a submarine captain, he would be or she would be at the top. I mean, that's the hierarchical. Then there'll be a, a, a warfare officer. So a ship's captain will probably be the next rung down, you know, in, in kind of reverence of these, these, uh, these, uh, these beings at the top. And then somewhere at the bottom, somewhere underneath a supply officer or logistician or whatever it might be, you might find a pilot or observer, you know, they're, they're low down, they're, they're low down. Um, they tend to be single ships flights flying, say links off the back of a, um, a frigate or a destroyer. And they also do the weather on board. They tell the, the captain what the weather's going to be like. So they're really kind of, you know, they're, they're not, it's reversed in the Air Force, of course, where the very top then is, is your fast jet pilot. And within that, you've got different levels. So it used to be like maybe a Harrier pilot at the top, maybe a Jaguar pilot. Then you've got like maybe the Tornado guys. And, and you know, that's just how it worked. Then next down, you might have multi-engine or, or rotary. And it's all, it's all false. It's all fake. It's all just that, you know, it's all make-believe. But mm. that tends to be how a pilot sort of sees himself within both services. And the Army is slightly different as well. So when I came across from... The Navy, where there was a very uh, the attitude for, for pilots was a bit gash. It was a bit um, playful, as it was. And you come across into and of course because no one really took any notice of you as a pilot in the Navy. And then you come across to the Air Force, where all of a sudden you put on a pedestal. I was uncomfortable with that. I have been forever. I didn't like it. Um, mm. I didn't see it that way. And I joke about it now, of course, just to banter. You know, my brother who was a multi-engines pilot. So he flew Hercules um, or helicopter pilots. You know, I, I bantered them as well because banter is quite an important survival tool, isn't it? Mm. But the truth is I was never happy with the, the way that pilots were put on a pedestal. The, the chief of the air staff could only traditionally be a pilot. I think they've changed that now. But if you have to remember as well in the Air Force, the only people that were traditionally sent into conflict, this is going back 60s and 70s and 80s, were pilots and, and, and navigators or weapons officers or, you mm. know, or air crew in general everyone else stayed at home. So I suppose that sort of came from that. Whereas in the Navy, of course, everyone on a ship was in, was in danger and was in, was in war. And of course, same thing with mm-hmm. the army. So that's probably why. And at university, I think it was colored a little bit because I was with the officer training corps, which is like the territorial army. I met my wife there. Um, and I could see the air squadron, the air squadron wouldn't accept people on HNDs. So of course I couldn't fly with them. So, so from the start, I started to see the air force is quite elitist mm-hmm. and I never sat comfortably. My family were, I'm not saying my family are working class, you know, from the streets, none of that rubbish. My dad was um, a police constable, stayed a police constable on traffic cars for 37 years. And my mother was a health visitor. You know, she never, there was no money, there was no rank, but my dad still put four kids for university on a, on a police constable salary of about 27 grand back in the day. It wasn't much. He was a uh, Royal Marine prior to that, was he? I yeah, he was Royal. Before. So he was um, with four five commando uh, for about nine years and then left mm-hmm. the Marine. He was in the Navy first. He joined, he was on ships first as a sailor and then transferred into the Marines. And then he joined the police force after that. Um, so he, he was talking about 
issues with institutionalization. So <laughs> your, your father, he's, he's the man to talk to about it, right? <laughs> well, he would be. I mean, he died in 2011, unfortunately. But I mean, he's, yeah. He, uh, yeah. The, well, the thing about it was as well, he was a reasonably quiet man. I mean, he came out of the valleys in South Wales. His father was a, was a police officer, a very strict man. And of course, if you look at my brother and I, I've got two sisters as well. But it's all public sector service within our, our family. Um, mm. My brother was the first one to enter private work when he started flying with uh, Emirates in, in the Middle East. That's the first breakout of public sector service that the family's ever had. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the police. I got pulled over yesterday um, by the police uh, for a minor traffic in, infraction, and they mm. were absolutely right. And we just got by the side of the curb and chatted out, and I was recalibrated, and the guy was fantastic. And we talked about my father, um, the police officer I was chatting to, knew Harry Tangy, who I'd interviewed on my own podcast, mm. who's a British police officer. We chatted about him. Uh, you know, and it's great. It wasn't like, here's a massive fine and here's a, it's just, it's just, I'm wrong. You know, I thank you for the stuff mm. you do. So, but if you look at my brother and I, we were always going to end up in the military. And that's a worrying thing for me. It was like, we were never not going to go into the military, even from a young age. When your father's father, your father's father's father, it, all that way comes down from a military background. Mm. My dad in the house had Royal Marine pictures up everywhere. You know, he had his green beret mm. on display and, you know, so just from a young age you're conditioned and that is something i'm i'm doing work on now david with myself is like i'm not in the military anymore mm. that attitude has to go um and it's it's quite damaging to try and take that into the civilian context so mm. i'm undoing a lot of that work and i think a lot of veterans that come out don't necessarily understand that that's necessary and that causes them to go on being quite a damaged veteran if you see what i mean mm. how do you characterize your message then so when you retired from the raf that transition into this sort of consulting um development personal development coaching space how has that um, um evolved for you and what what is the message what was the purpose with that how do you situate yourself as that kind of post military sort of person well I, I didn't start it when i left the military i started when i was in the military and, oh, right. uh, I okay. started, it was back in 2011 i was um just came back from afghanistan and uh, mm. i was with the u.s army out there and i was with a guy called lieutenant lieutenant general coldwell bill coldwell the, the, the fourth i think it was and he was um the commander he was a three-star general in the united states army and he was also the commander of what's called nato training mission in afghanistan and i was working within something called strategic communications mm. i shut down the mail program i'm sorry and um what he did back in 2007 in Iraq is one of his young people came to him, young soldiers, and said, look, we're losing the message here with the Iraqi people. They're operating out of southern Iraq. Um, what I really like to do is put some of our stuff on YouTube, which is quite new back then. No one really knew about it. Mm. He said, I'd like to put some stuff on about you know fixing our vehicles and going out and helping out businesses in southern Iraq. And then I think that way we can get a message to the people and they might stop mortaring us in our camps because mm. they're getting mortared a lot um, by the locals, of course, and being attacked. And this general uh, didn't have to do it at all, but he said, well, I've got nothing else. Let's try this new social media thing. I don't understand. And this guy, you know, he's in his 50s um, at the time, you know, with 20-year-olds coming to him, asking him to do this, to allow this. And so he allowed it. And they started putting out these just real simple videos of like fixing a, a tire on or fixing a, a wheel on one of their cars and, mm. it, over a period, and then and helping out businesses and going and helping out local people. And, after, and then the attacks started decreasing. And, uh, and I spoke to him about this because I was working very close to him in the office. And I said, I said, what happened after that? And he said, I went back to the States and on the army bases, I realized the power of social media for the individual soldier in um, being able to communicate what they were doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And I felt it was going to help retention and help uh, morale. And so I asked the mm. Department of Defense, I said, can I 
allow social media on these bases. You can imagine this back in 2008. And by the way, it doesn't, it still hasn't happened in the British military. We have no social media on our own work computers. And the Department of Defense says, well, by all means do it, but if it goes wrong, it's on you. He did it. And what that allowed then, and the classic example he said was um, he, he had, a, he started seeing um, one particular soldier, I think it was a young black soldier who had a really broken home life. And yet this guy was a driver of a, an M1 Abrams tank. And this guy would be outside his tank, like, like this, with a tank in the background with his arms folded, <laughs> really proud of what he was doing. And he'd have this picture and he'd put it onto, I think what was Facebook coming in back then, I think it was, and then eventually Twitter. And the bandwidth was, was small, so they, they couldn't like stream loads of videos, but it allowed engagement and engagement was so important. And when I came back to the UK, I realized that the military wasn't engaging in any way. And it just so happened that uh, the uh, chief of the air staff at the time, the Royal Air Force, a guy called Stephen Hillier, I went and did a seed drill with him where you, there was only me, his, his personal staff officer, and, um, and him. And I think we were in Hollyhead Harbour floating around mm. in little dinghies, part of training. And uh, I said to him, it just so happened there were three of us on, on this drill. And I said, uh, you know, what is your number one objective at the moment? And he said, um, engagement with the public. And I said, oh, I've got a blog that I write. I said, I've been doing this for about a year or so because I started writing when I came back. Mm. And he, was, he said, yeah, carry it on. Now, he he said carry on doing that and yet the bosses on the base were rallying against it even people i worked with were telling me to take it down all this kind of stuff they didn't understand and they hadn't been in afghanistan the same period as i had they hadn't seen the effect of engagement in the way i had and so i started writing about things like mental health the challenges we had on the squadron with the new flying training system that was coming in Mm. and the problems that we were having uh with a, a marked civilian presence within the, the a military flying training system and the two worlds combative they weren't coming together understandably i didn't understand civilians and they didn't understand military and uh and i and the more resistance i got david the more resistance to the writing i got this is probably a thing about writers the more you get pushed back this the sort of the more resilient you become until eventually you're so resilient that it doesn't matter what anyone says you're just going to write anyway it doesn't matter and that's where i kind of find myself today and uh whenever i write or put a video out i get spears mm-hmm. but you know, crikey, who doesn't get spears? Look at J.K. Rowling and, and what she what she writes. I mean, mm-hmm. so do you think there was a is a certain uh, even though it was endorsed by your chain of command that there was something that's perceived as being a bit anti-establishment or not conforming to what's expected of the fighter pilot or the military aviator or the military person in general by embracing that kind of content communication platform? Yeah, so, well, no one's no one written before me. No one's written after me. Um, mm. yeah, I think the, the word I'd jump on there is conformity. I mean, the, the problem with being, okay, so if we look at what conformity is, it's the, it opposes creativity by definition. It's the tall poppy syndrome, isn't it? I mean, mm. what, what we tend to find is you put your head above the parapet to say something. There's always someone that's going to chop you down because what you're doing, this is why you never find like, um, you very rare to find like a musician or, or, or someone that goes and acts within say, I, I suppose the elitist structure of the fighter pilot community, you will find there's outliers, you'll find someone, of course you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, by doing that, by putting your hand up or stepping up, um, you're right to be cut down because you're saying, I'm a different kind of line, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a better line than the rest of the lines in this in this pack. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I found it a lot, yeah, and some of it's really hurtful. I mean, I get, I get a lot of, I still get hate. I mean, some of the Red Arrows is a bit different with the Red Arrows display team because I did an investigation into them, but... Uh, a couple of those guys mm. really don't like what I write because I write some things about the team as well. 
uh, mm. that they don't like. Of course, it really alters um, people's impressions of the team. Mm. So, yeah, I do get that. But again, I'd rather write and keep people safe. That's what I feel I'm doing mm. than mm. not write and look at another fatality within the service. Also, mm. I've kind of moved away from the service a little bit now. I don't want to define mm. myself by my, my background. I'm trying mm. to work out. I'm taking time over it as well. I don't know whether you, you've experienced this, but I see people um, come out of the military and they immediately try and find another thing they're going to be an airline pilot or they're going to go to Saudi and teach on a hawk out there or an airplane out there mm. with me. Uh, I, I knew that to do that would be the wrong thing because mm. I knew that spending 20 years in the military was a long time and I didn't understand the civilian world. Mm. And for me, I, I walked into, um, I live on the, in the West of England and I walked into Hereford A&E. I think I've said this before. I had chest pains for weeks and weeks about, nine months after I left the service and then my arms started getting pain and everything. I walked into A&E and just sat down accident emergency and said, if I'm having a heart attack, you know, age of 40, what was I 44 at the time? Can I sit here? And they said, yeah, of course you can. And then a doctor came in. I got triaged. A doctor came and spoke to me, an Asian guy, lovely bloke. And uh, he said that he's seen a lot of it because of course the special air service are, are there. And when guys leave, they go through something similar. And it's, um, it's a real advanced kind of like panic attack that's built up over mm. a period of time. And it was to do with the fact that in civilian world, all of this is chaos. And uh, to me, there's no order. Mm. Whereas in the military, there's a lot of order and structure. And mm. my, I was reacting to this chaos. Whereas what he said was, in your fast jet at night in Scotland on night vision goggles, that to anyone else would be chaos. But to you, that's order. That's, that's mm -hmm. structure. You understand it. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people come out of the military with that. So I knew I was going to walk into something like that. I didn't want to jump into another career straight away. So I took some time. My wife's working. Um, mm. I do a lot of as I say, coaching work and, and this kind of thing and, and do some stuff with businesses. So, uh, you know, what the next step is for me, I, I don't know. But I do know that mm. it's not going to be within a conformist, regimented um, archetypal uh, blue chip business. I don't think that's not mm. where I am. Is that characterised your personality a bit more than have you always been a little bit on the edge in your career or is this something now that you're sort of just fighting back at 20 years of oppression <laughs> of your individuality somehow, you know, is this your chance to reclaim Tim that you no, well, it's interesting. Get up a bit of? I mean, that's, that's very insightful. Um, you know, I still see a therapist every, every three months and I think men, I think men should, I think, and, and I'll get to your question. I'm interested in it because I think women have a purpose if they have children, especially my wife doesn't, and she's going through a bit of an issue right now, not because of the, the, the lack of children, but her dad's not very well. And, and we're just kind of like holding each other's hands and getting, getting her through this. But mm. women tend to have, when, when women has, has a child, she has a purpose. It's well-defined. I think mm. it's, it is. I mean, it's there. You, you can't go on. they going to let that kid go. It's like, you have to have a purpose, mm. but men, they don't seem to have that instilled purpose. And I think, I think that's one of the issues that I always had. I felt that the service uh, could be doing better. And I realize now this is an era in, in me. Uh, everything could be doing better. Yeah, David, I mean, everything could be doing better. Mm -hmm. But I did fight against that. I did fight against it a lot. Not so much on the front line. I was very fortunate to be on a squadron, um, which is one of the first ones into Iraq back in 2003. And we just happened to be like a bit of a band of misfits. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the tornadoes, oh, the tornadoes here, or down there as well, this tornado here. Mm -hmm. And that was 12 squadron. And, uh, I came across from the Navy where I was quite comfortable. I joined the Navy for five years. And when I lost the Sea Harrier, I didn't get onto the Sea Harrier. It was decommissioned, but I wasn't very good at air combat anyway. So I was a ground attack guy and my, my training was better for ground attack. So 
I got taken across to the Air Force and ended up flying on a particular squadron that was full of waste and strays and women, by the way. A lot of squadrons didn't want women at the time. And so our, the squadron I was on was happy to accept women, lots of women. And so we had lots of, lots of girls on there, which was just great. I loved it. And uh, we had a great time because everyone thought we were a bad squadron and yet we were winning awards left, right and center. And, and we had a great time. So on the front line, I was content and happy. And I don't think I was pushing back against things almost at all, apart from the actual conflict itself in Iraq in 2003 or the whole, the whole of the military pushed back against that. Um, no one believed that was fair, but, and then when we, when I went into training, I think that's where I started having issues. Uh, not so much on, the, the Hawk T1, but most definitely when the Hawk T2 came in under something called the United Kingdom Military Flying Training System. You have to remember that all pilots, are, and some pilots get confused about this, and that's fine. All pilots are, are quite contrarian, and this is why Maverick is called Maverick in the film Top Gun, because mm. uh, we're, we're by, by, and I, get, I get hate from this, even when I say it now, and your podcast will probably get some hate, and, and genuinely I don't care, because I, I spent a long time working within this, but um, a pilot will look up in the sky when they're very young and they'll see a little airplane. And most people think the aircraft belongs to the Royal Air Force. And that's why most people in the UK try and get into the Air Force. They don't realize that it's probably a naval aircraft or it could be an army <laughs> helicopter, but either way. Mm. So they say, I want to go and fly jets in the Air Force. And they, and they basically what they're saying is I want to leave this ground that I'm standing on and all these people that are around me. And I want to go up there instead. I want to break away from this that everyone else is doing. And I want to go somewhere else. And that's hard work because you're basically telling everyone, um, well, you're saying to yourself that you, you've got to do a lot of work for a start from a very early age. I'm giving a lecture tonight to um, the air cadets and this, I'm saying something very similar. It's, you can't be embarrassed about um, trying to take on a very difficult task. A lot of people are, especially young people. They don't, they don't want their, people, their friends to laugh at them and, and tell them they're never going to make it. But that's what you're fighting when you're a young kid trying to be a pilot is your mum's telling you you should pick a, um, an easier career to get into um, because she's trying to protect you. You understand? I understand. You your dad's doing that. <laughs> yeah, well, this is it. I mean, it's done, that's right? Cool. So I, I get it. And, um, and you're saying, no, I'm going to go for it. And you're risking mm. humiliation and embarrassment and you're risking failure, which everyone hates to fail, of course. I mean, mm. they don't understand that fail stands for, you know, first attempt in learning. Mm-hmm. and that's how we learn is through failure mm-hmm. and uh and so that's why people that's why pilots tend to be mavericks because they've been fighting since a very early age and all it takes is just something to, to trigger a pilot to give them a purpose in life and and they'll take it and bite it and run forever with this thing and for me it was what i felt was the injustice in selling um a, a very tangible asset that the country had and the royal air force had which was flying training and handing it across to um, a company that were inept and that's um, a, a company called Ascent Flight Training. And, and if I, I say this, they can try and sue me, but there's a legacy of them being inept. Now I know them now they've changed by the way, but back in 2007, eight, nine, up until 2014, the country, the, the company struggled. Mm-hmm. I worked alongside them. Um, they've sacked many people within the, the, the senior levels recently, but and that's fine. And they're a lot better now because they've learned, but it took them 12 mm. years. But wasn't it somewhat inevitable that would happen, though? Because to come from the civilian space, or had they already been a military contractor doing similar stuff elsewhere? Is that how they wanted, or were they just the kind of the best uh, offer on the table, as it were? And it was too good to turn down. It's often the yeah, way these so. tenders go, right? Yeah. So the reason that 
the reason that we had to civilianize flying training, it was the Ministry of Defence that civilianized flying training was because it was too expensive. Well, well, it was unpredictable, the expense, because one year, you know, your bill might be 20 million or something. The next year it was going to be 600 million because we needed to buy more aircraft. And the Treasury mm-hmm. was saying, hang on a second, I'd allocated that resources to the hospitals or I'd allocated that to education. So they mm-hmm. said, look, how can we make this more predictable? They said, well, just, just tell us how much each year you want and we just give you that every year you know and they said well okay um we've done the maths on it and we reckon it's about 250 million every year for the whole of the uh, military flying training so they worked out 6.4 billion or something whatever it was dollars i think it was and then um lockheed martin came together with babcock's defense services and they formed ascent as a company which is fine and uh and they just didn't unfortunately they didn't put the right people in and didn't pay wages accordingly i mean you had people that used to drive tanks trying to write flying training software courseware sorry that my men that had to go down and edit and uh the whole thing was a farce until eventually I, I managed to bring two psychologists up to the squadron and uh they ran a report on the squadron for two weeks interviewing all the pilots and and all the ground crew and everything and they recommend the, the squadron was shut down for six months which did happen it was forcibly closed wow. by the director of flying training i think it was and that allowed me then to get all my instructors trained up so that they then could train the students and after that i was a lot happier because we were safer but up until mm-hmm. that point we were walking into a fatality um and we, we almost did have a fatality a very nasty one in air combat and we we're lucky lucky that we didn't and i never had a fatality on a squadron i was quite fortunate i, I worked pretty hard i think to make sure that never happened mm-hmm. but but what, what where did that uh come from though was that because of people weren't in the right headspace, there was confusion over the uh, what they were supposed to be doing, um, what actually led to the squadron being shut down, what was the outcome of the investigation to take such a drastic action? Yeah, so the, the, what was I, I was saying, what I was saying was that I cannot, uh, I had a team of instructors, and the instructors come back from, say, Typhoon or Tornado at the time, or Harrier, who was at the time as well, and they're, they're, a, they're a pilot, they're a frontline pilot, but I've got to train them into an instructor. You can't just take a pilot and mm. get them to teach in the, in the, in the military, in the, the British military, in the Royal mm. Air Force. It takes about nine months to train that person all through the trips until they're what's called a, a B2 instructor, a probationary instructor, and then another nine months, and then we can make them into a B1 instructor, which is a, mm. a, an, an average instructor, an average pilot, and then up to A2, and there's, there's a couple more grades. Fine. And what was happening was as soon as my instructors were trained to be instructors, they were being used to train the students, but I couldn't then use those instructors to train more instructors coming in. Mm. So we were stuck with instructors that, or pilots that were ready to be trained to be instructors, and I couldn't even train them. So my team, who were supposed to be training those guys, were being used to train the students because we had a, a course one, had a, a woman on it. And, um, and she was fantastic. She's great. She's on Typhoon now. But it was a big PR thing to get that first course done. And look, we can celebrate how efficient flying training is and how great it all is. You know, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It was never going to stop. And um, we did finish course one. And soon after course one, we're finished. Because uh, courses run up three or four. Uh, was it every, every six weeks, a new course would start of about six people, six mm-hmm. students. Uh, and we'd have about three or four instructor courses a year. And they just weren't getting trained. And so... Um, this, the psychologist came up and said, this is unsustainable. Not only from a mental health perspective of the pilots who were coming to me and saying, we're going to die. This is the, the, someone's going to have a fatality. And, and I had to write an email to the, the boss of the squadron, who, of course, his promotion is output-based, understandably so. You know, mm-hmm. The more he gets out and the more he does, the more likely he's going to get picked up. And eventually, uh, the psychologist wrote the report. It was pretty damning, to be honest. And we knew it would be. And I'd worked with them on um, a service inquiry, so an accident investigation into the Red Arrows previously, so I knew the, mm. the women involved who were the psychologists. 
And they just said, yeah, we're, this squadron is walking into um, serious issues. And the director of flying training, who's in charge of all flying training, looked at the report and said, this is ridiculous. You've got to stop flying. And he, he stopped everyone. He stopped us. Uh, so he shut down all student flying. The squadron was shut down for training students, but instructor flying, then I was allowed because I was responsible for instructor um, education. I was allowed then to train all my instructors. And to be fair, although we were formally shut down for six months, after about three and a half, four, um, we had enough instructors up now that we were self-sustaining and we started to bring back students in mm. and uh, started to retrain the students again. Mm. Yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. You mentioned the similar thing before about this identity and that um, your, say, perception of who you are, how you can try to understand yourself, gets so wrapped up in the person that you were shaped and moulded to be. And um, and it's, I guess that I transitioned that question from this idea of how do you take that professional identity and then stand on your own two feet and find out who you really are outside of that. Is there, who else is there? And, um, and then is there, does the imposter syndrome sort of creep in at some point where you reflect and think, how did I get away with bullshitting myself through that for so long in some ways that I know as a pilot myself, there's always this fear that someday someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and go, all right, mate, enough's enough. You know, <laughs> we, we know who you really are and, and you don't belong. You know, we, we've seen through it now. And I, I can only imagine as a military pilot or any of those really uh, elitist professions within the military that um, there's that constant pressure and stress of having to perform and the fear that one day you're going to be found out, right, that uh, um, somebody's going to, um, you yeah, know, give you the, the, the old uh, call up and say, okay, enough's enough. And um, perhaps you could speak to that a bit and particularly as a flight instructor, seeing the next generation of people, men and women coming through and how they maybe seeing yourself in them or how that transition takes place as they adopt that identity and what sort of guidance you could give people at the earlier stage of their career and how to maybe prepare them for the journey they're going to go on, if you know what I mean. It's kind of a complex, uh, not really a question in there, but more of a theme, shall we say. Yeah, I mean, you can break it out into, there is a lot in there, by the way. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Thanks so much. Yeah, you can talk, I mean, you're absolutely right, imposter syndrome, self-sabotage, huge themes. I've written about it. I've talked about it a lot. I've seen it a lot. I've had it a lot, of course, you know, we all do. We all, I think we all live with uh, imposter syndrome, self-sabotage. I think women live with it more, to be honest, mm-hmm. uh, than men. Um, and then if you, if, you, if you sort of convince yourself that's not possible, then you trend towards narcissism, I, I guess, and, and that can be just as dangerous, and, and you, don't, you don't want that near a cockpit, as you know. So, yeah, there are some people that probably shouldn't be in airplanes, but confidence and, and arrogance, there's a fine line between the two, and you've got to be a confident pilot, uh, and you've got to stay out of the arrogant space. It's pretty simple. simple. So if we see a, a student pilot drifting into the arrogant space, then we stop them, recalibrate, and then they carry on. They're worth a lot of money. They've had a lot of training, and they're not really like that ever. Um, a student pilot is very much in the, uh, in the in the imposter camp and in the self-sabotage camp, most definitely. The young woman on Typhoon we, I spoke about earlier, um, she'd entered that self-sabotage and she was failing trips intentionally, but subconsciously she was mm-hmm. not performing. And we had to stop her flying towards the end of one of the courses she was on, go back, give her, I think it was a nine-trip package again with a lot of education, a lot of um, uh, performance coaching until she got out and, and she of course she went the other way then she, she went into the over not overconfident but the her, her problem was how she engaged with people she was flying with she was um she was sort of leading a lot for them as opposed to being direct and in flying especially when you're working with 
two or three different airplanes, you have to be direct with people and tell them what your plan is. And she was kind of looking for affirmation from them that the plan was okay. And uh, then it turned around the other way and she just ended up shouting at people. So it was quite <laughs> amusing, but you know, she went on to Typhoon. She's great. She's only, she's only small as well, you know, um, she's brilliant. And uh, so, yeah, there is that. So that takes a lot of nurturing. Uh, in fact, I'm designing a system at the moment, which takes a lot of the subjectivity out of flying training. Um, and it's to do a biometrics, but also a lot of performance coaching that we, that we deliver and we go through and we can measure metrics and mental health and sleep patterns and um, uh, nutrition and everything else. I'm doing that with um, a company called Talis in the UK, of course, and, and another company called Aerolis, which are a flying training and manufacturing company that are looking for funding at the moment. So we, we do have that. Imposter syndrome, uh, self-sabotage, very relevant in many, many fields. I don't think it ever go away. Even when I was like the most senior instructor at Valley on this airplane, RF Valley on the airplane, you, you, we know you're still only as good as your last trip. Uh, you'll always be judged on that, even the station commander. And you do start to see when you're that, when you've been doing that long, you're that senior, you do start to see uh, other people who are above you, but aren't doing as well. So I remember one trip with the boss. Uh, I remember thinking I've got to, I'm going to have to go and speak to the boss because I was fighting him in air combat. And, um, just because we have what's called staff hands at the end of a student sortie sometimes where to keep current, you know, the students phone the whole, whole trip hmm. and you just say at the very end, look, I just need a, I need to get a merge in just for my currency, which means I need to do one combat merge just for currency. And the student's like, yeah, have it, have it. Because if they're not flying, you can't fail them, can you? So they're like, yeah, take the jet. <laughs> have it, have it, fly it home for me. You know, it's like, I was a student hmm. once, I get it. And uh, I was fighting the boss and he'd just come off a tour on the F-18 in America, uh, in Canada, uh, Canada. And the F-18 is not like the Hawk. And uh, I had to go and see him afterwards and say, look, you know, we, we could go up together and maybe hack out some, air combat teach and just get you used to the, the hawk because your air combat isn't and of course he's the boss but of course the bosses don't fly enough uh, mm. and at the end i wasn't flying enough and so you do get rusty and it's there's no there's nothing personal in it it's just you're at the top of your game let's go and make sure that you stay at the top of your game uh, mm. let's not let's not embarrass let's not get ourselves embarrassed in front of younger better pilots so there mm. is that there's always that i think that mm. covers the the student bit and i think it covers a bit of the instructor Bit, but mm, I, mm. I wouldn't want any pilot going to work not feeling as if they were let's get this right now be careful with the words i wouldn't want a pilot going to work thinking they were at the top of their game every day that makes mm. sense that's unsafe to me i want a pilot going mm. to work thinking i've got some work to do today i've got to hit the flight tapes i've got to do some reading i've got to make sure i stay at the level i am because mm. i'm an instructor and i'm responsible for young lives and um, i don't want people going in there and if I felt any of my instructors, which they didn't, by the way, else I wouldn't have chosen them to be on my team. If I felt any of my instructors weren't humble or humbled by the experience of where they were, mm. I would have removed them and put them somewhere else. I've had uh, experience recently. I've been involved in aviation safety for quite a long time, and I was doing an investigation recently over a fairly significant event that didn't result in an accident, but there was not a lot of daylight left um, before that would have been the case. And there's many reasons, as always, why this situation eventuated. But the key question when interviewing the crew is you expect from the earliest days of training as a pilot, when you come back from the sortie and you, the instructor asks, the, asks the, the trainee, how do you think that went? And how they respond tells you everything about where they're at mentally um, in terms of the attitudes required to do this job, right? So if the guy says, yeah, I think, yeah, it went well, um, you know, could have done this a bit better but um, generally no it was a good sortie and the instructor shaking his head because it was absolute garbage right then you know you've got a lot of work to do uh, whereas if the guy is maybe overcritical, critical um, which is the side you want to ear on 
you know, I, I, I was texting too fast, I braked too late, I blah, 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 and they just go through the whole sortie and you say, okay, well, you've hit, we can work through those things and they've identified nine out of the 10 things that you had written down. Okay, we can work with that. So this was the case that I found recently that how these guys respond to that initial question, how do you think that flight went or what can you tell me about where you went wrong um, when reviewing the data afterwards? And, uh, you know, we, yeah, that without going into any more details about that, it definitely gives you an insight into the way people think and where they're at, I think, mentally operating an aircraft. And, you know, if they're way off the reservation in terms of those responses, then you have to question it seriously. And these are sort of the the, the turning inward conversations we had to have as a, as a flight ops management team about what do we do from here. But, um, I, yeah, I think uh, keeping that sort of close keeping in close touch with the attitude of the guys you and girls you're working with on a continuing basis. And I guess, you know, you get to know people when you know sort of the good days and bad days, but um, it's very difficult to train out a bad attitude, right? If somebody comes in, is there, how have you seen in the, as the time has moved on from say, when you went through ab initio training and, and moving into um, different qualifications, into fast jets eventually, how has the type of candidate that is entering selection these days changed? Or what is there something that is, is the military looking for a different person than they used to? Is there a culture that is um, ingrained and you're just finding people that is close, fit that mold as closely as possible and then we're going to sort of finish it off on the way? Or has there been a significant shift at some point and the different types of people that you're getting and, and, and what would those things be if, if that's the case? So I speak to a lot of the young people. A lot of people write to me and unfortunately they haven't done the work and I, I don't answer them if they don't do the work. They say, how much does a pilot earn? And I'm like, well, Google your friend. You know, just don't waste millions. my time. Yeah, millions. Yeah, yeah. Get into that job, crikey. Um, <laughs> which someone told me, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, there has changed. It has changed. It's bound to change because the thing about, being a pilot, well, piloting's changed, isn't it? Now it's very much um, we have remotely piloted air systems, our pads. You know, we have all sorts of things going on, and um, really, piloting now is more about systems management than it is actually about polling an aircraft. Um, mm. These aircraft, the F thirty five, you know, things like this, they're, they're not difficult to fly. Um, they're, they're difficult to operate. Don't get me wrong. And the sensor mm. management and the data, it's different types of skills, right? Yeah, different types of skills. So what we tend to be looking for now. Um, is more of an operator mindset than a than a pilot mindset. It's very different, of course. If you, if you, it is different, and I'm just generalising because when we select into the Air Force or the Navy, we have to select for the highest capability. So you have to be of a level where you could go and fly an F-35. You you can't just come in and go, well, I don't want to fly F-35, but you know I'm, I'm not that great and I haven't got amazing academics or anything, but I just want to fly a helicopter, a small helicopter. It doesn't happen. You know, you've got to be available to, mm. and then during flying training, your preference comes out, uh, your ability is, is more mm. understood, um, and then we can put you somewhere, hopefully, where you, you can perform and you can shine and you can do well for the community because you've got to add value to that community you join, whether that's a fast jet, multi-engine or helicopter or remotely piloted air systems um, uh, vehicle community. You have to be able to add value. There's no point going in and taking. And I say this, mm -hmm. one of my biggest lessons to any candidate is when you sit in front of the board, you've got to show them how you're going to be able to add something to the service. Now, the Royal Air Force is difficult. It's very different to the Navy. <laughs> the Royal Air Force is difficult. Freudian slip, you know, it is difficult. Um, it's, very, it's, diff it's different to the Navy. So I say to people, if you're a bit, uh, if, your, if your grades aren't like 
100 percent uh if you haven't got the gold dv duke of edinburgh if you if you haven't gone out and helped a charity somewhere or, or done some work and, and invested in the community somehow maybe look at the navy the navy are more interested in the individual than the actual academics whereas the, the royal air force i call it the service but only because i was in it for so long the royal air force is a bit reversed they tend to be more academically driven they will also criticize me for saying that because they do say that um they they're very much into what the individual can bring into the service and that's not incorrect but if if your grades aren't at the top then the royal air force is only taking people at the top and the reason they're doing that is because everyone applies to the air force mm-hmm. not everyone applies to the navy because when you look up you go oh there's a plane this guy must be a royal air force jet mm-hmm. and so of course they get the best of the best coming to them they just do it's just a fact the navy doesn't because people don't see the navy as aviation as such it sees it as ships you know blue ocean literal whatever it might be and submarines and things but it does have and the fleet air arm of course but it's much smaller than the royal air force the army again is very different isn't it army is about soldiering first and then you know going flying later but so the student that's coming in has also changed and what i've tend to find i'm not critical of this at all but when i was in the military when i was a student back in 2000 and well 98 through to about 2003 there was a culture of going to the bar after work and talking about the flights. There was no single crew for students either. The crews for students and instructors were mixed. So the crews where you get your tea, coffee, make sandwiches, whatever it might be. All the mm. students are in there. All the instructors are in there. So you saw how the instructors mm. behaved. You, you heard what the instructors talked about. You realized what was serious and wasn't serious in flying. You realized that if an instructor was to say, oh, I'm not too worried about um, him pressing that wrong button but his lookout was exceptionally poor and that's mm. why i failed his trip and that you'd hear these comments in the crew <laughs> mm. and you go oh really so the lookout is more important than when i type when i put my tacan on i mean that's that's mm-hmm. that's that's not you you'd think it would be the reverse or whatever you know so you might question the instructor or you talk about it as students like what does he mean that lookout so important lookout so important? you talk about it mm. um also students would be in the crew and they would go up to an instructor and say, look, I've just failed a trip. Um, can I have 10 minutes with, with you later? Because you don't want to talk to your own instructor because you just failed the trip with them. You're like, oh, sulking. Mm-hmm. You might ask another instructor and the instructor will go, yeah, 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 yeah. Because they might have just, there might be a young instructor just come off the front line themselves. They're not one of the old and bold. So they're more approachable because mm-hmm. you're going to be doing what they did in three years. So you'd mm-hmm. go and you'd, you'd talk to them and they give you a 10 minute board brief on, on whatever it might be. But you learn so much just by osmosis, by speaking to these by having the instructors that close, it rubs off. We've separated the crew rooms out now. So the students have their own crew room with their own computers and they can do work there. And it was thought to be really beneficial for them because then they're not repressed or whatever it might be, whatever term, you know, mm. whatever term HR are using now, you know, mm. you know students need their own special time, don't they? It's like, oh, shut up. You know, I, I, it makes me angry. Mm. But that made it worse, in my opinion, um, unfortunately. And then the instructors, there is a big crew room for everyone, but what I'm saying is the students have a room to go to where they don't have to socialise a lot of the students understand the value of being around the instructors, but the instructors are so busy now with secondary duties and other things. Squadrons don't run themselves um, that they're very rarely in the crew. And what I tried to do as one of the senior guys was even though I had a lot of work to do, I'd be in the crew room drinking tea, reading a magazine like the old days going, look, we can do this. So I can do this. Other instructors can come in and do this as well. And some of the other bigger instructors, you know, the bolder guys would also be in the crew room. They might be doing the work in there. They might have paperwork that they're doing stuff over, but they, they'd show a presence in the crew room to say, look, we're approachable. You know, and of course you were. Students knew this. It's a very mature mm. environment because everyone dies in the same way. Um, mm. I'd rather a student was admitting his errors to me or I could admit my errors to a student um, so that they were safer. Another thing we did, uh, but what I'm saying is the students are very clinical now in a way that they weren't, David. They're very, very academic. 
um, and they don't all go to the bar and get smashed up. They go home or they go back to their rooms in the mess and they might do some work and they might watch some TV. That's just a product of, of the internet and everything else. Um, I was going to come onto a separate subject there, but I just kind of skipped over it a little bit. I'll come back to it in a minute. But um, mm-hmm. so, oh yeah, that's one of the things. I'll just jump on it now. We have flight tapes, <clears throat> as you sure you know. So everything in the aircraft recorded, head-up display and all the other systems are recorded. So you can see exactly what the aircraft, well, that one over there, uh, the Hawk, uh, the Hawk TT, exactly what's happened. You can see when every button was pressed, everything else. And so we used to, when I was going through my training on that particular airplane, the instructor flight tapes were locked, which meant that the students couldn't see them. And then when I took over the, the job, I unlocked them all. And that caused huge issues with all the instructors. They hated me for it. Not all of them. The, the, the older ones, the older, bolder ones, the more mature ones understood it and, and agreed with it. The younger instructors were worried that the students would see the mistakes they were making and it would discredit them as instructors. And what I said is, no, it's important that the student sees you making those mistakes because then the, the student can, can see that it's all right to make those mistakes mm. and they can learn from it. And then they can be open. And what actually happened, we had a great French pilot on the squadron at the time, a guy called Patrick, a good friend of mine. Um, he, went, he went back to France and he, he bought a small house with a pool. And I keep sending him inflatable dolphins every summer. He hates me for doing <laughs> just, just to annoy him. He's like, my pool is full of dolphins. But I go and see him sometimes when I'm in France. And he's a lovely guy. He was in the French Air Force. He came on exchange and uh, an exceptional air combat pilot. One of the few guys I just so nuanced in what he did. One of those guys, I'd, I'd always, he'd always end up behind me and I always go, I, I just don't know how that happened. Um, you know, I, I don't know how that happened. It's, it's mad. He's there again. Um, but I remember one, I remember bringing the flight tapes up and I remember talking about some of my own stories in front of the, there's always a morning Met brief. There's three of them, but you always go to one. And if you make a mistake, I always try to stay up as stand up as OC standards. You know, I'm supposed to be the senior instructor. I stand up and say, Guys, I want to tell you about what happened to me yesterday. I want to tell you about why it's my fault. And I want to tell you about what I'm going to do about it so it doesn't happen again. And it'll be some minor infraction. Another thing I'd do is I'd come back in sometimes with a student who hadn't done that well. And um, when students don't do very well, they tend to clam up a little bit. So we fly not just one airplane, but you might fly with three aircraft all in a formation together doing air combat. Or you might fly two aircraft doing attacks when the other aircraft's trying to attack them. So you might have six people, men and women, in in a brief at the end of the day. Um, a lot more on the tornado, of course, you could have up to 10. But sometimes I realized I speak to the, the instructor of one of the students who I could see from my aircraft wasn't performing that well. I could hear it as well. I could hear from the comm. And I'd say to that instructor, how do you go? And the instructor was like, no, not brilliant. And he's all clammed up about it. He's not, he doesn't really want to talk about it. Okay, okay, cool. So I'd come into the brief. And the first thing we do is you write aim on the board. What was the aim of the sortie? We ask a student, sortie says, well, to go and prosecute two targets in South Wales using these tactics, well, fine, without getting shot down, fine. Okay, next thing you write is safety in big red letters. And then safety comes out from all of them. You go around each guy, right? Safety, number one, have you got any safety? Number two, have you got any safety points? And before I did that, what I'd sometimes do, especially when I was solo and I was um, just being the the bounce aircraft or the attack aircraft, knowing that one of those young guys, or even an instructor, if we were working up instructors, knowing that they were getting, um, well, we call it a sad on, you know, they were just sulking a bit because they'd underperformed. Um, I'd, put, I'd go, right, guys, before I ask about safety, I'm going to put up what I did here. I made some safety mistakes today. I really want to um, be open about them. I think it's going to really benefit us all. And I'd make up stuff 
that wasn't real. I said, I missed a fuel check. Um, I was 200 kilograms low on a fuel check. I missed that. I'm going to write up fuel. For me, fuel is really important. At one point, uh, when I came into the merge, I realized I was concentrating out here. My lookout was in one place and I wasn't looking out the other side. I'm going to write up lookout here because it's exceptionally important that we do that. Okay. So I'm highlighting my areas, guys. All right. Um, uh, being open about it, being honest about it. And I just want to bring that to the team. What you then find by doing that is the rest of the room would open up. Mm. And that's what this Frenchman did. One day he stood up in Metbrief and he said, I've got 3,000 hours on Mirage uh, for the French Air Force. And today I made a mistake I never made before. I want to tell you about it. And he had a mini presentation about something he'd done. It wasn't that serious, but he just put it up there. He said, in air combat, I've never done this before. It could lead to this. I want to write that. Now, because he was such a senior guy and he was an exchange guy, most exchange guys are like, just hide, do three years, happy, you know. Um, the squadron then started to turn and I just kept pushing this. And when I went back up there, before I left the service, uh, we had students standing up and they were being, you know, far too honest. They were like, they were like you know, <laughs> I didn't have breakfast this morning. And, uh, you know, it's like, I stopped talking, stop talking. But um, no, it was a great atmosphere. And that's gone throughout the service now, throughout the Royal Air Force and the, and the Royal Navy. And so there's a, and that's what I, that's what I see uh, right now, Dave, is I'm trying to push forward. Is this, um, this thing with not just veterans, but I think men's mental health, where I'd really like people to just be honest with themselves and understand that a lot of these problems, I'll get shot down for this, but I know these problems are my own problems. I probably cause a lot of them. And it's up to me to, to undo that. It's up to me to do the work, to make that better. I can't rely on a, a charity necessarily. It's never going to work. Um, and I know that I've been out in my garage looking at beams, you know, two years ago. I know, I know where that is. I know that's the wrong thing to do. So that's where I'm coming from now using those lessons from the service. Um, but yeah, in in conclusion, there there's, they are slightly different students, but they're still exceptionally hardworking and, and very talented individuals. Um, really, I um, I read a paper recently which uh, was quite fascinating, where some psychologists um, interviewed uh, police officers in New York City, and they were asking them about if they were familiar with this dearth of crime dramas that you see NYPD Blues and the CSIs and all of these bloody shows. And uh, how familiar were the, the the cops with these TV shows and how did they feel about them in terms of the portrayal? Was it just the Hollywood sort of bullshit or was there some, what, what was true, what was not? And how did they actually um, feel about those portrayals as well? And the fascinating conclusion the, um, that the study found was a lot of the police officers are actually adopting the traits of the on-screen personas in terms of they are looking at those shows and is almost some sort of guidance in how they should behave, which is very bizarre. It's like if you watch Top Gun and as a, as a fighter pilot and know that it's all bullshit, but then the next thing you're out playing volleyball with the lads, you know, so it's, it's there, this idea that um, the mainstream view of certain professions has become so ingrained from the uh, the media that those professions begin to adopt that persona. And I wonder how much transitioning into, say, that the role of the fighter pilots, and notwithstanding there's many women doing the job as well now, of course, there's obviously some sort of machismo that's inherent to that position, whether that truly exists, and I guess that's one question. Is that really a thing? Um, and is... Um, so how does that translate into the attitudes of members on the squadrons? Uh, is there an expectation that you are this compartmentalizer, as, as um, Lanny Gibb uh, talks about, that you should um, kind of bottle things up and uh, you've just got to 
show up and we don't really address how we're feeling as such. We, uh, um, there's an expectation of who I should be, again, coming back to this identity thing and what's, what's expected and where does that leave people um, who may adopt those kinds of uh, sort of stereotypical um, personas. Yeah, so when you talk about Lani Gibb, you're talking about um, the flight, the United States Air Force flight surgeon who gave a presentation called The Failing Aviator back in mm -hmm. the 90s, I believe it was, and I put it on my YouTube channel. He talks about U.S. naval aviators, but it's, it's the same thing. He says they're mission-oriented compartmentalizers um, who, uh, who, who characterize their male-female interface by, by distance, don't they? So, and, and there's things like this as well. I mean, there's a lot of things, and they're all true. Mm. They're all true. Um, I'll tell you what doesn't work is when you apply that to a marriage, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when my wife saw that thing, and she saw that film mm. oh, years and years ago now, that really upset her because she realized that there wasn't the service that made you like that. You were like mm. that pretty much before you went into the service and the service just amplified it. So mm. the military amplified that. Um, as I said, an individual self-selects to be a pilot and then the service selects them. So there's that there's once they're into the service and they're doing the job, they're pretty much, if they fit, put it that way, they, all pilots are the same. They're all the same. Um, really are the same. And I, and I tell you, I get, I get pushback sometimes from the airline community, especially when I wrote an essay about um, failing a student. Uh, and, and even though she hadn't really failed the trip, what you couldn't understand was she hadn't really failed the individual sortie, but she was failing. And if we carried on letting her fail in fast jets, she, she probably, she, um, the best she could, she would do is kill herself. The worst she would do is put the jet on an orphanage. You know what I mean? And so, mm -hmm. but the airline community didn't understand that. So when I say pilots are the same, in general, yes, but there are some pilots that have been career airline guys who don't understand necessarily the consequence of, of teaching very young people with underdeveloped um, frontal cortexes to be responsible in highly dynamic um, situations involving fast airplanes very close to the ground. I get that. But in general, yes, all pilots are the same. So we do compartmentalize emotions. If something's happened to us before we go flying, had an argument with the wife, whatever it might be, argument with the husband before you go, and you, you're crewing into your jet and you're thinking about that, then you're in the wrong place. And you know this mm -hmm. as well, you know, you're in the wrong place. You need to put that trip off and you need to go back in and, and talk to yourself about why you're still thinking about that episode. Why is it in your brain? Cause you're not able to compartmentalize it. Um, I was chatting to a, a guy yesterday, in fact, who's in New Zealand now, a lovely bloke, a, fr a friend of mine, one of my pilots went through a rough time. And I remember walking to a jet with him and he was angry about something. A lot of pilots are angry and he was angry the whole way out to the airplane talking about this other thing. But as soon as he got to it, it stopped. We went and flew. It was fantastic. As he got back out of the jet again, when he put his foot on the ground, he went back into rant mode again. Um, and that, that to me made me realize the dude was completely safe to fly. He, he was able to compartmentalize his emotions. And therefore he was safe for me to put up airborne again. And a lot of people don't understand that either. They think that you shouldn't fly a guy, but the, the circumstance for this man was that he, he had to fly. There was nothing much else in his life worthwhile at the time. So, so yeah, I think, um, Lanny, Lanny Gibb in, in the, in the briefing does it very well. And, uh, the, that's not, that's not great though. This is why I say when you come out of it, you need to do some work. I, I, I wear a watch now that that is an automatic watch and I purposely set it two minutes off and I, I hate it. Right. Because I'm used to hacks and being to the second and everything. What I have found therapeutic though, is I, I got dragged in to a, a video game called DCS digital combat sim. It's a flying mm. sim. And another game called X-Plane. Someone dragged me in there. 
And the guys from DCS, some of the guys in the DCS team who, who make this game, one of the guys is an ex-Tornado Navigator, and he dragged me in and he said, look, I fly this airplane in DCS, and it's quite therapeutic. And I didn't believe him. I know, I know. I, I was like, I don't want to learn an F-18 flight manual. I've got no interest in that whatsoever. Um, but I did. I went and picked up the little F-5, Northrop Grumman F-5, and I went and, or Northrop F-5, and I went and learned that airplane. And it was just there was something about just getting your mind off stuff that was happening in your own life again. You know, when you're having mm-hmm. to go through flight manuals and you're having to go through checklists and I was on virtual reality as well, you know, VR. And, uh, I say to the wife, sometimes I'm going to go and do an hour or so of, you know, pretend flying. Um, mm-hmm. cause I don't want to get back in an airplane just yet. To be fair, it's a bit soon. And I know a lot of American pilots and British pilots and a lot of them say that, you know, they did the same thing as me. And when it comes back to you, I get offers to fly all the time, by the way, but uh, yeah, at the moment I'm kind of happy to take a break, but yeah, I think um, you've got to do that work, but you can't go around compartmentalizing emotions in a marriage. You know, I'm quite open to my wife. Now I have to say to my wife, uh, you know, this is some deep stuff here, David. I have to say, look, I feel quite vulnerable with the marriage at the moment. And I have to, you know, I feel angry at the moment, not at you, but you know, I just feel anger. Let's talk. And that's what kind of men have to do that deep work. Um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. else marriages break up. And, and mine, when I left the military was, was very much like that very much. Um, I think any, I think, I think maybe 70, 80% of, of men would have left the marriage at that point. And I didn't, and it was hard, but it's better now because I went and did lots of work on it with my wife and we're stronger because of it, but it's, uh, it's hard when you come out of the military, tell mm. Yeah. I, I pretty much, um, that failing aviator video, I, I made the comment to you that I watched that a, um, several years ago and I just about fell off my chair listening to him. I found it very, um, uh, I don't know if disturbing is the right word, but it was amazing. On the one hand, there was there's a sense of relief, right? When somebody seems to know you better than you know yourself and you've never met this person and you never will, um, and they're just bullet pointing your personality or aspects of it, this is crazy. And this is where the psychology interest came for me was that, well, actually as individual and unique and I'm a snowflake and everything else as I think I am, we're all somehow tapped out of the same kind of, clay you know there's a lot of similarities and and the psychologists the research psychologists i mean they dedicate their lives to trying to unpack these things and and building tools we can use to understand ourselves and and get as much quality of life and happiness as we can right so applying that lens to the aviator as uh, lenny did um, was just incredible for me and i showed my wife this i've showed it to her a couple of times and um, while there's obviously very specific things unique to the military aviator in terms of these uh, status symbols and the, the, the medals and all the rest of it, um, that emotional distance thing uh, was interesting. And, and it's always amazing when he's got through the bulk of that where he talks about how you must be in control, the male-female interface and mission-oriented compartmentalizer and you're predictable. And he goes through all the ways that that is ruining your life and those of the people that care about you most. And he says, and those are the good bits, right? Those are all the good things about you. <laughs> it's like bloody hell. And then uh, when he says, um, you know, you lack spontaneity, you are incapable of uh, original thought. And that really hurts. And I think that uh, in some ways, you know, my kind of expression in this podcasting space and writing, and I, I see maybe that's similar in you as well, that it's almost uh, fighting back against all the things that are trying to constrain us into this certain persona, which, as you say, we kind of brought to the table to start with, but it, it just never quite feels right. You know, you, you want to continue to 
maintain that little bit of uh, unique character, that individuality and expression, which, um, you know, we get in the airplane, we get the checklist, we run through the procedures, we think ahead of the airplane, we're doing all the things expected of us and we're good at it and we love it, but we want to be able to go home and turn the music up loud and just do something different and, and go to the pub with people who are totally um, nothing to do with that profession as well. The last thing you want to do, as much as we like to have these conversations, uh, I know these days now living in Hong Kong, you know, I walk across paths with people who work in finance and business and all manner of industries. And uh, I'm not interested in talking about what I do. It's, and it's frustrating because um, without sounding on your, my high horse, people are always fascinated. Oh, what do you do? I'm a pilot, blah, blah, blah. Oh, wow, that must be amazing. Tell me all about it. And, and it is interesting to people. But I want to change the conversation, you know. Let's talk about something different because that's what I do. It's all I've done. It's kind of, I wouldn't say it's boring, but the conversations about it are kind of boring to me now. So um, maybe the, there's this sort of resistance. So all of these things that if, if a guy I've never met knows me better than I know myself, then now I have to fight back to find aspects of me which are there somewhere, which he doesn't know and nobody else knows, right? That, uh, and so there, there's a bit of nuance that you need to look for in yourself. And maybe that's that part of the transition from a profession, whether it's coming out of the military, which is a very hard, blunt line. And now actually with this bloody COVID saga, where there's literally thousands of pilots are going to be out on the street, it seems to happen every 10 years. And uh, having to find an identity that is separated from that professional subculture that you've placed so much of yourself into that kind of props you up somehow. So, uh, you know, the tools and the programs you're running, I think, are so important now for men and, and women, obviously, um, who are facing uncertainty and periods of transition where they can find that it's okay to be who you are and who you've been. And there's a lot of value and strength in those qualities. But there's also downsides and there's other aspects of you that need to be, um, that need to be tapped into um, to find kind of the next path the next stage of the journey as it were yeah i think um i'm a big fan of this creativity business i mean you're writing that's unusual by the way i mean you writing and you doing a podcast is unusual for a pilot it's, it is uh, how many other pilots you know doing that there are a few but it's unusual mm -hmm. it's um as i said Certainly you know, not about flying anyway it's nothing yeah. to do with flying yeah yeah absolutely and uh this is this is where i went through the transition i was writing about flying when i was in the service and then i came out and started writing about other things I was quite interested in other professions. As I said my father was a police officer, he was firearms, I wrote about him. And I write about other things, and I'm now writing about things that interest me that my community aren't interested in. So the communities change as you go on. And what I don't do is write for other people. I write for myself, literally. And it's really weird because people say, well, you must like it when people like what you write. It's like, yeah, I do. I honestly really do. But you have to remember, I don't know who that person is. So when someone writes to me saying, I really loved your essay, well thank you i really appreciate that and that's really great and i'm glad it resonated with someone in the same way that when someone writes to me and says i really hate your essay it's like okay great stuff that's fine, okay, fine. <laughs> it doesn't it's, it's all right you know, i don't know who you are and i'm not writing for you anyway i'm, I'm writing because i'm mm. just and like you do with your podcast it's it's you know what i'm interested in this and i'm going to write about this and uh you don't have to read it by the way but i'm, I'm just writing about this and it might benefit some people and it, it might not and if it doesn't hey that's cool that's cool too it's the ricky mm. gervais isn't it taking a seeing a sign in a town square saying guitar lessons. He's like, I don't want guitar lessons. It's like, yeah, 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 that's fine. You, know, you, you don't have to listen to my podcast. There's other ones too. There's David's one. Hey, go listen to David's. Um, 
But you're right. I, I saw a tweet the other day from a, a guy flying golf streams out in the States, actually. He was a friend of mine in the service. Um, he went into the, the VIP sector and he wrote, um, there's no politics or religion on my flight deck. And mm-hmm. what he meant was, I, I don't want to talk about it. And I get that. Mm. But I do want to talk about it. You know, it, it's interesting. I want to know what makes up the other guy. I'm not going to sit there if he's um, mm. he had two pilots on the squadron from the US Marine Corps. In fact, when I was there, they were AV8B Harrier guys. And one was a fierce Democrat and one was a fierce Republican. I love chatting <laughs> to those two guys. They, they must have said, how can we, how can we uh, entertain the British? Let's send these two guys. It'd be brilliant. <laughs> and uh, I love chatting to those two guys because you could also, you could wind them up pretty quickly, of course, because the flash the bang of pilots, I think Lanny Gibb says, it's quite, you know, you can piss pilots mm. off, he said, didn't he, quite easily. He's like, yeah. I'm in the pissed off position or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you could you could say something. You could just be at the at the uh, at the the crew and bar or whatever with these two Marine Corps guys chatting away, and you could you could say something that would just flash one of them up. Um, but I love that. I think it's great. But the, the the American politics is very partisan. So maybe when my friend said this about on Twitter, maybe he's saying that because of American politics is is a lot more partisan than say the British politics is. But I um that's what I'm interested in with pilots. I'm like, well, why do you think that? Cause now we're getting into the individual, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And now we're, we're breaking out of the, the mold, the, the kind of the stenciling as we talked about before. Mm-hmm. And we're saying, what makes you up as an individual? You know, are you married? Do you have kids? What, what other interests? When I speak to say my kid brother or someone, uh, someone in big fleets, my brother's on triple sevens out in, in, in Dubai. There's the same chat they go through every day. You, you crew in, you know, with a guy you've never met before and you've got a team down the back you've never met before. And that's mm. the difference, isn't it? Between military, I fly with the same, I flew with the same guys for 20 years, but you know, and then you do that thing. Hey, been in, been in the job long. Yeah. Yeah. I've been in for, you know, all right. How about you? Oh, I'm, I got my captain. What about three years ago now? And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to retire mm. in about seven years. Oh, that's amazing. And you do this thing and it's the small talk you do as you, as you're in the cruise or whatever. And then everyone gets their iPads out and you look at your home projects and you're like, oh, I'm building a shed. Oh, I'm building. That's cool. And then you might read a magazine, eat the lobster, chat to the you know the person or whatever and then you're in the descent it's a sterile cockpit below ten thousand feet anyway and you know i get it i get it i get it but i'm interested in that individual mm. i mean that chat is very formulaic and we all know it um you know we we had something as when you're very early on in military flying you do the same thing you know you, you tend to keep it very professional in the cockpit but then on my last trip and uh, i've got the flight take for my last trip i went just just flew the jet with a guy called tim uh who's a friend of mine just we just took it on i think i mean the house i'm in now was about 20 minutes flight time from Valley, four hours drive. So we went and did a strafe attack on this house and I've got a HUD picture of it, you know, and I'll put it on the wall somewhere. Mm-hmm. But flying down here at low level, uh, he was just chatting about the fact he was going to buy a caravan and um, what caravan it was. And occasionally we'd talk about the fuel, but mainly it was about <laughs> caravans. And uh, he was leaving the service too. And my wife watched the flight tape. She said, oh, can I watch your flight tape? You know, after you come in last flight, you went upstairs, had a cup of tea. I put the flight tape on. I said, oh, I'll show you the, the attack on the house. And she, she said it was one of the weirdest things for her. She never knew this happened. Like we're about to attack the house. We've got about a minute 15 target run. As we're approaching the target, I'm going through the checks. And he's like, but I might get one with one of these things that pulls out the side. You have like some extra living space. And I was like, hack. And we're just talking down the run because we've done it so many times. Mm. And, and, and it is just secondary nature and switches alive, everything else. We've got the TV tabs going on. We know where we are. Mm. And then we pull up, did the maneuver, strafe off, switches safe. And then he, then I say, well, yeah, maybe get one that does that. You'd have some space, you know. Yeah, yeah. She was like, that's just mad. But that's the thing, I suppose. When and that's probably when you know it's probably time to leave as well. When you've got to that stage where you're not enticed by it anymore, it's it's not stimulating, and it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not cavalier. Don't get me wrong. I mean, everyone can watch that flight tape. It's live. You can go and, if you're at Valley. You can go and watch my flight tape. My last trip is up there somewhere. Um, but it's 
I realized that I, I wasn't, uh, well, that's why you're leaving, isn't it? Cause you've just done it for a long time and mm. you want to do something else. And it's, I, it's I had a, a, I, I flew in Austria for a number of years, um, sort of fairly early in my career. And, uh, we were in a little jet and, uh, little business jet. And I was a co-pilot with this, um, really lovely Austrian guy with a big white beard and he, uh, um, everyone liked him, but it just been around for a long time. And, uh, we, we get airborne, sort of V1 rotate, 500 feet, you know, gears up. And then he turns to me and he says, oh, so which part of Vienna do you live in? <laughs> like, Mate, we're, we're in one of the busiest airspaces in the world here. You know, we're just seconds airborne here. <laughs> you know, I'm a new co-pilot. Yeah. I'm like, shit, everything's happening too fast. And, yeah, he was seat back, you know, ready to get stuck into the, uh, the, the protocol, the conversation, as you say. So, you know, everybody is at different stages and in terms of yeah, their, you respect uh, that. their approach to that, which is interesting. You've got to respect that. Um, you're absolutely right. And that, that wouldn't happen with a student. They'd be a very quiet cockpit. In fact, in the tornado, when we had, um, when we're out in Iraq, you know, you know you're flying around at 25,000 feet for eight hours. Of course you talk about other things, but in general you're, you're on task, you're on mission. And the same with red flag. Red flag is a, obviously mm. an exercise in America. It's a very mm. highly dynamic radio environment as well. You're listening to three or four different channels. Your nav's working on one channel whilst you're working another. I'll be on strike primary, he'll be on something else, or she'll be on something else. Uh, and you've got jets all around you and you're talking within the formation, but you just want to keep that level of calm down. So there really is no front to back. You know what your mission is. You know where you need to go. You, you plan for what happens when something happens. Like if you get targeted by someone, you know what to do. Um, the, the crew communication is minimal, which means if you do say something, then it's important. And uh, But, you know, attacking my house on my last trip, yeah i'll tell you what we do i mean obviously you know in the circuit when you're when you're getting airborne or you're recovering that's all you're talking about of course there's nothing else but um but you know i mean fast jet flying isn't all dynamic the whole time sometimes you're mm-hmm. just sitting at 300 knots just waiting to you're waiting for a formation to pass underneath you so you can attack them and you, you might be sitting mm-hmm. there for two or three minutes you know so mm-hmm. passing the time but um what well, you did talk about the, the machismo aspect of mm-hmm. of the pilot and I'm, I kind of didn't make a mistake. I probably did make a mistake if I'm fair. Well, I just, you know, you make mistakes when you think, don't you? So you, you, you think and you talk and you, you're discovering things. And one of the things I said to someone recently was, I don't think many of us had an ego. And now we all do have an ego. Everyone has an ego, of course. But what I meant, of course, we know that. But what I meant was like a, a maverick ego or something. You know what I mean? Mm. You, you realize, and the reason, I, the reason I say that is because what does happen in military flying, it happens in civilian flying as well, is that you, you watch better pilots and you die. They, they have accidents or incidents and they lose their life and they are better than you. And then you think, I'm going to work tomorrow and that guy was better than me and he still died. And so that kind of really humbles you a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, and so you don't have this massive ego. I mean, there's no point walking around. My wife says this a lot. She goes, well, if you're an astronaut and you only work with astronauts, then who do you tell you're an astronaut to? You know, it's like... <laughs> Yeah, it's a fair point because everyone else in the room is an astronaut as well. So there's no mm. point going into your squadron and going, I'm a fast jet pilot. They're like, we are too. Everyone is, dude. Everyone is. It doesn't matter. High five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. High five, everyone. everyone. So um, it's like, yeah, we're really awesome. It's like, yeah, let's have mm. some more tea and yeah, not go to the bar because that's frowned upon. Um, but you, but it's the same thing though. I mean, you do like it when your parents, well, parents or your friend's parents or your you know, family talk to you about it, whatever, and ask what you do and, and you can explain it and you can you know, bring the joys of aviation to them. Maybe uh, I think that's probably why I got a lot of stick writing. I wrote an essay on mental health. It was called when good pilots go bad. Mm-hmm. And it was about my own descent 
into problems post coming back from Afghanistan in 2011. A lot of things in 2011 happened at the same time that just kind of pushed me into this spiral. Carried on flying, obviously, you know, crikey, because um, no one would stop me. That's the problem. No one actually stopped me flying. I was like, stop me flying, mm-hmm. anyone? Well, you, Even you the psychologist. That, you made that comment earlier about the guy who you felt, you know, he got in the aeroplane and he just he did the job as good as he ever did and you knew he was safe to fly, even though when he got out of the jet, um, he, uh, you know, he was back into the same space he was before. But and and you made that comment that um, it's pretty much all he had, and you couldn't take that away from him. That was the last thing holding him together. Which is, in some ways, it's a very disturbing comment because if people thought that, geez, have we got people up there flying aeroplanes where they maybe are so unstable that, uh, but but that comes back to that identity thing that it's so in, integral to the persona of. Um, people that have really devoted their lives to this profession that when the rest of the world is crumbling around crumbling around them that's all they have is to get back into that safe space ironically that's my worry with the current downtrend in in and the, the current unemployment trend in um in aviation jobs especially in the airline industry is you do have these people that have not really known anything else and this and a lot of this is to do with the flight training schools that harp on about pilot shortages so they can put guys through training and then never there's never a job to go to and i i do hate that but um the the issue being there are a lot of people i think my brother's probably one of them to be fair i mean he did a lot of time on um on the hercules uh, at war in fact he was a bit of an operator i like to think i was as well but he was definitely more of an operator than me you know he, so he stole hercules once from the royal air force and flew it around with the on missions with the united states air force and eventually the royal air force had to contact me down in um i was flying out of ue at the time and said are you in contact with your brother i said well i can be and they said can you ask him to bring our hercules back please you know, <laughs> it needs servicing and he was on um he's on the herc j so they only had a uh, him, his co-pilot, and a loadmaster down the back, and they were just working with the Americans. They hadn't, the Americans hadn't really asked them, and the, the British hadn't said they could. They just ended up on an American base. But mm-hmm. he was like that, and then he flew for the Canadians on Hercules and lived in Canada, and now he's with Emirates. And his life is kind of defined by that. Um, mm-hmm. And I get it. And my worry is, you know, if he becomes unemployed, it's gonna we're going to struggle. So, mm-hmm. well, everyone's going to struggle, right? So I get emails now from um, airline guys going, hey, what do we do now? And I'm like, well, let's mm-hmm. let's have a chat for an hour and let's reinvent you. Let's get something done. Because that's not going to go away, by the way. What I'm saying mm-hmm. is the ambition and the drive and the fact that all this out here right now, which is chaos, especially now because we're in Corona times, pilots are kind of okay with that. We're like, okay, well, I've seen this. I've seen worse in the sim. You know, <laughs> I've seen what chaos is in the sim. You know, this mm-hmm. isn't chaos. You know, I, I've mm-hmm. seen what happens when I'm flying with a bad instructor or something and, and it's, uh, bad things happen. So I'm, I, I became really comfortable with, with Corona as a guy, as a, as an ex pilot. I was like, oh, this is cool with me. I'll just, I'll just go and hit my little gym out there. I'll go and build a gym in my garage and you know, I'll go and find some work somewhere, I guess. I'll do something. So we're quite resilient in that respect. Um, but, but you're right. I think there is, there is that thing, isn't there that we have, I don't think it goes away. I speak to pilots now. I can tell by the way, I speak to someone like an industry and they're being BD or they're being uh they might be in marketing or something or something random, non-aviation based. And I say, oh, you're a pilot, you're a private pilot? And they go, yeah, how do you know? It's just the way we kind of operate. It's kind of formulaic and, and we're mm-hmm. all the same and we can just talk to each other in the same way, mm-hmm. you know. I, um, I better start wrapping this up, um, Tim. Thanks for being so generous with your time. There, there's sort of one question. I guess it comes back to that combat thing that all of the stuff we're talking about, sort of military aviators, general, people in general, um, but something very unique to your career and the career of anyone who's been in the military really in the last 
couple of decades and obviously prior to that, but certainly more recently with the global war on terror and so on, that you guys have seen service, active combat. So in some ways, the a lot of what we talk about is the culture of making it into the Air Force or the Navy as a pilot and being groomed into those roles and everything that just surrounds just doing the job and what that means is representing the the the, the caricature of an Air Force pilot, shall we say. And then there's this whole idea that you've got to go and shoot bad guys and bad guys are going to shoot at you. And that's a whole another world. Obviously, the frontline soldier, um, the Marine, has a very up-close and personal um, confrontation with that. But how much does that then play into all of the stuff we've talked about if, if there's a stream through that in terms of um, your training that prepares you for that? How do you manage it at the time? And then what what's the how do you manage yourself back out of that at the end? So the, a lot of men, and it tends to be men, um, I speak to coming out of uh, sort of the, the teeth arms of the Marines. I speak to a lot of Marines. I speak to a lot of Special Forces guys, in fact, but they are slightly different because they have seen kinetic ops and been involved in, I mean, they basically they've discharged their weapon in combat. A lot of Army guys I chat to, a lot of soldiers um, haven't. And they've been to these conflicts and they might have had a guy next to them blown up by an ID. It's a very unfair war, isn't it? And there's mm-hmm. no one to shoot. There's no one to shoot. And my and they have they have some real PTSD issues. I mean, some and I, I talk a lot about micro traumas. Um, so people used to think that you needed to have a traumatic event to have post-traumatic stress disorder. The traumatic event needs to be shooting someone or being shot at or being blown up or but that's not the case. All these traumas are there anyway. It micro day to day. A lot. I mean, if we take it down to the smallest part, having to turn up at work every day for twenty years at the same time to the second is a micro trauma. I mean, yeah, it's not the same as getting blown up. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying it's a micro trauma. It adds up to your bucket of traumas. Um, the fact you've got to iron your trousers every day or your shirt, you've got to be physically fit to a certain level. Um, you can't do what you want. I you you can't. Um, I don't know take cannabis to relax, whatever it might be, the small little micro repressions add up. You come out of the service and you're like, why am I feeling horrible like this as a veteran? Why am I thinking about hanging myself? I never killed anyone. I never got shot at. Well, that's exactly why you're feeling like this because you trained for so long to do something. And then when you went out there to do it, you were unable to do it. That's a horrible place to be. Um, you were looking for like a warrior's death. I put something on Fast Performance, my, my site the other night, and you never got that warrior's death. And you still kind of yearn for it in a weird way because you still feel like you're a warrior. This is why I talk about the adjustments when you come out. My one was over southern Iraq where there was there was young soldiers. Three of them died in a in a convoy that was hit by an IED. And they they all three died at about 30-minute intervals. And I was over the top of them. And I couldn't put a bomb down. I couldn't use the gun. And we're there. And I called my buddy up from southern Iraq as well, from Basra. It was over a town called Amara back in 2006, 7, I think. I can't remember now. And I couldn't do anything to help these soldiers. And they kept telling us, oh, that, that second guy's died. And then th- I'm trying to get other air assets in to try and help these guys. So I didn't even get to do anything in that event. And yet it still kind of haunts me in a weird way. Like the, the ineffective, how, how ineffective was I? You know, how those guys died. I couldn't do anything about it. And fortunately, I think this is what probably saved me a lot, lot of issues later. Was when I came back on the airplane out of Iraq, when I was coming home, you leave theater at different times. They roll in new pilots, um, older pilots go out and, you know, you're not all shipped in at once, but I was on the airplane with some of the, the, the troops from that incident. It just so happened. And they said that, um, one of the guys said to me, he said, when I was holding the hand, he said, my best mate, he said, when you came and he was in bits, this guy, you know, holding his hand. 
And he said, um, this guy was looking at him like the whole time on the ground. He was like, and he was like, mate, mate, you're going to be right. You're going to be right. And then my jet came over quite low and fast because I'm trying to get the crowds away because they're worried that people are going to be shooting the troops who are trying to help out. Mm. And he said, he said to him, I said, mate, mate, it's going to be all right. The tornadoes are here. The tornadoes are here. And then his mate died. I mean, that's some, at that moment, he just died. And that kind of, it kind of gets you a bit, you know, it's weird. Mm. But that's the thing. By, I think by speaking to those soldiers on the way home and realizing that, you know, they were, they were going to have to do some work themselves. It, it's a strange thing, conflict. And you're not, when you're going through uh, uh, flying, I say to people when they join the military, look, you're going to be trained to be a weapon system. Whether that's flying a helicopter with a gun or whether it's flying a transport aircraft with loads of guys with guns down the back, you are a weapon system. Whether you're flying a jet with weapons on it, literally, it's not a, it's not a flying club. You know, you may join the military and, and you, you learn to fly and you learn to fly in little propeller airplanes and you do some aerobatics and then you, then you go on a bit more and maybe you, you, you do some, some routes. It's not until you touch jets in the fast jet world, it's not until you touch jets that you actually start talking about weapons mm. until that point. They don't do target runs in, in grobs. It's mm. not that, you know? Mm. And then you, and some guys are like, okay, cool. Let's, and I know the guys, you can see it in them. They're like, I don't know whether I want to do this. And it's mm. like, we well, don't get a choice now. It's a conversation we've got to have, but you mm. are doing this. This is where you are. You are a pilot. You're a combat pilot. You're a weapon system. In the same way, a soldier carries their weapon system to the battlefield. Their weapon system is a rifle, and it's very obvious. I'm carrying my rifle to the battlefield. A fighter pilot takes that weapon. It's quite a big, expensive weapon, but you still take it to the battlefield in support of other people. And um, one of the things we got across as a student is, like, we have to get across to them is, you know, your job here is to deliver death in a uh, – well, deliver an exceptional amount of violence in a very expeditious manner. Because in order to do that, if I can take out half a tank brigade on one pass, that tank brigade stops combat effectiveness. They stop functioning, and therefore we can spare the lives of the rest of the tank brigade. If I just kill one tank and go back and get another bomb, kill another tank, go back, that whole tank brigade is going to be wiped out eventually. So we have to deliver a massive amount of force in a very limited... And that upsets pacifists. I get it. I wouldn't say I was a pacifist, but I'm very much against armed conflicts. I really... Mm. I think recently as well, one of the things you can say that about Trump that's, that's good is he hasn't dragged the United States into a war like every other president ever did. Um, so I think he recognizes the benefit of not doing that. I'm not and, sure uh, that's for lack of trying, though, Tim. Well, you know, <laughs> hey, and we can jump into the whole politics war if you <laughs> no, want. We've got to wrap this thing up. It's that's right. another, that's we, another podcast. We're neither right Democrats nor Republicans in this conversation. So yeah, no. I, I don't <laughs> want to be doing that right now. Save that for the cockpit. Uh, yeah. But that's the thing. So I think that can be as, as, um, as difficult sometimes. And then that's the undoing, I think, is the, all right, so, so especially for people that have killed people in conflict where those conflicts were probably patently unjust and we realize those were, it happens to pilots 30 years after the event, apparently. What happens is they have children of their own, and then and they realize, actually, the young people who are now, or the people they, they killed who are now their, their teenager son or military-age male's son, his age, was, was just someone else's son who was probably paid $10 to go and fire an AK-47 at some troops, and then we put a paver on their head. You know, it's, mm. it's, not, it's not the people that should be being killed are being killed. It's the people that need the money um, because we wrecked their economy of being killed. And it's someone's son, someone's husband, you know, someone's wife. Mm-hmm. And they're the pilots. And are like, why do I do that? Just because someone told me to do it. It's weird. Mm-hmm. And that's the work. I, I do a lot of work with men on that. It's like, well, let's just talk this through. Let's just unpack this. And, but it takes time and it takes a lot mm-hmm. of personal responsibility. I feel and ownership. And, and I presume there's really no answer to that. Right. Because this is the way that it is, the way that it was. And, uh, 
helping people to kind of just reconcile these events as part of their life narrative and that it's not all of who they are and it's not the end of the journey um, is, uh, is, I guess, that vital step to finding a way forward through those kinds of traumas. Um, somehow just being okay with that story as well. Uh, I think particularly for the, for the military veteran who has confronted things that most people fortunately will never have to experience. Uh, yeah, it must be, um, yeah, I can only imagine the challenges that are faced and, and, you know, it's a real crisis, you know, if the suicides among veterans in the U S and UK elsewhere, I mean, it's happening all the time. So clearly the resources are not available or that there's not enough being done or yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's a bit of a dark note to end on, I suppose, but it's, um, it is a reality faced by so many. And uh, when you train somebody to be this weapon, this extension of politics by other means, then you, uh, um, people are kind of put into a position where they're optimised to do this function very well. They're selected because they're going to be excellent at it. They're trainable. They've got all the right attributes for the job. And then, but at the end of the day, they're still people that all of that goes away and they're still there somehow, hopefully. And how do you, uh, so all of that stuff we've talked about, just for the general person navigating their way through life or the pilot or whoever, for the military person, um, that's, this is fascinating to me. That's such a whole different kettle of fish. And if uh, my life should take a bit of a U-turn at some point for one reason or another and psychology becomes more of a profession as opposed to a hobby for me, then that's definitely something I'd like to pursue uh, and more more closely, I think, in trying to understand and help people through that sort of journey as well because it's really a pandemic. You know, speaking of pandemics, is uh, twenty. you can't fight wars for 20 years. You know, when you've got um, people who have their children are fighting in the same bloody war that they were in, say they were in Iraq in 2003, and now their son was there or in Afghanistan, you know, 10 years later or something like that. I mean, this is a, a crazy time with a lot of people who are, uh, you know, being impacted in some shape or form. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving on. Yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. I think um, find a way through it. I think one of the big problems when you leave the military is you don't get any real adjustment. You can go do a week's course on bricklaying if you want to. You know, I would recommend vocational skills. But um, in general, you only do a two-day uh, leaving course, a resettlement course, which one day is about buying a house and the next day I think was about um, investing with the money you don't have. You're being sold to by a, a, an investment firm anyway to go and invest with them. So there's no sitting down in a circle and saying, guys, when you leave, this is what's going to happen. Your wife's going to think this or your husband's going to think this. Uh, you're going to struggle with this, you know, sleep issues, your probably alcohol is going to be a big support for you. That doesn't happen at all. Um, I think there's no interest in the military putting that in. It should be, of course. I mean, crikey. Mm. You know? I mean, they, they train you up. It took me five and a half years to get onto the front line to fly the big, you know, fly tornado. And then I'm still being trained. And yet it takes you two days for them to supposedly mm. untrain you when you go back into city world. And I think this is why you see veterans on the street because um, veterans like, well, it's chaos anyway out here, so I may as well go and go and you know live on the street instead. And I think there's obviously a, an aspect of having an issue with authority after you've had authority for so long, 
And one of the big things I, I do talk about, and I'm investigating, I'm doing work on this at the moment, David, is about discipline. Like people say, well, military people must be so disciplined. And there's truth in that, but not personal discipline. Military people are disciplined. I had to be somewhere at a certain time. You would say, oh, you're so disciplined to do that. It's like, well, no, if I wasn't there at a certain time, I didn't get to fly that day and people lost trips and students couldn't fly. So I had to be there. That's not personal discipline. And when you come out of the military, I think that's what veterans lack a little bit of like, well, there's no one telling me what to do anymore. I don't have to go to bed at a structure. Yeah, structure is important. And that's the one thing I, I do on my spin course in, in week one is we say you're setting a bedtime. It starts the night before. The bedtime will determine when you get up in the morning. And when you get up in the morning, there's four things you're going to do. There's a spirituality, there's an activity, there's you're planning your nutrition, there's looking at the commitments you have for the day. It's just sanctuary. The first four letters of sanctuary. We build the individual sanctuary away from pets, away from family. And we then talk about upping um, uh, some routines and physical exercise and stuff like this and, mm-hmm. and putting nutrients in the body. And, and that just doing that first week is, is more than most people have done in their entire time on this planet. It's, it's like, mm-hmm. well, since I left school, I didn't have to get out of bed on time. You know, mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. So um, there's things, this is why I'm talking, there's things we can do, uh, but we have to just take personal responsibility for it and you have to put a bit of work in. And mm-hmm. that's not always things people want to do, unfortunately. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that, that, we, you, we almost need to give permission to people to take that bit of time, particularly people with families and other commitments, where there's a struggle to sort of find the the individual amongst competing responsibilities and an expectation that, well, it's not about you. You you know, you're not allowed to focus on yourself or your mental health or things, small steps that will move you in the right direction. So I think a lot of people just need to be given permission to say it's okay to kind of prioritise that for a while because ultimately – it's, you're going to be a better human being for the people that you care about and that need you and, and care about you as well. So, you know, it's a crucial step to sort of make to come out of under the burden of trying to please others, whether it's professionally or privately or personally, I should say, yeah. as well. Yeah, it's the only way. It's the only way. It's like why mm. they say put your oxygen mask on before you put it on someone else. <laughs> You've got yeah. to, and people don't do it. People go, oh, I'm there for my wife. You hear it time and time again. Well, I'm there for my wife. Well, you're an idiot then. Because mm. you're going to be hanging in your garage in three weeks' time, you've got to take. You've got to be selfish about your own mental health. You've got to be selfish mm. about it. I'm I'm ruthless about this because I know mm. where I'm going to be. Otherwise, you know what I mean. I know where this is. When I talk to men, mainly as men in groups, I talk to. I'm I'm saying to them, you know, I don't care. You you paid me the money, and this is why this is why it's so much money. It's half the price of a UK funeral, by the way. Give me that money if you can't afford to die. It, it might sound awful. <laughs> that's, that, that's the marketing slogan. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Even in a funeral, that's, that's what you're paying. You're paying me. It used to be the price of a UK funeral, but now I'm giving you fifty percent back because I'm a generous man. But for the next twelve weeks, you do what I tell you to do, and this is the work. And we've got a set out. It's a whole syllabus there. You work through it it's based mm-hmm. in japanese culture and, and buddhism uh but it's also pers- based in individual responsibility authenticity and i say you know we're going to set summer up that is yours no one else goes there it doesn't matter it's more of a, a time thing you, you're up before the family's up because the family need to see you doing work that's the whole point they need to be you need, they need to see they need to see you contributing something i being valuable so you do that work um i've got a young nephew who's six he hasn't got a father he's got two sisters who are four and he's got a mum he doesn't see men doing work. So whenever he's up here, whenever I'm down there, I'm there. I'm, I'm top off. I'm doing press-ups. I'm doing pull-ups. I'm doing sit-ups. Um, I'm, I'm working on myself. I'm, I'm giving him that subliminal message. Men need to work on yourself, okay? Or else you lose self-esteem. You lose pride. Then people don't, people look at you and go, oh, that other guy's much better because he's, you know, it's like, I get it. Families break up. And when veterans come outside, I say, structure is so important. Structure is the only thing. And your, self, your self-esteem and your mental health, is your personal responsibility. Don't abdicate it to some charity somewhere that's got another 400 guys it's trying to look after. It's mm. like put nutrients in your body, get the right amount of sleep, okay? 
think about the alcohol as a tool or might have to get rid of it for a while. I do advocate getting rid of it for a period of time, like give yourself six months, see how you feel. Um, get some green powders into neck, uh, you know, have some, I hate saying it, but have some long baths with bubble baths and a little duck <laughs> and read a book, you know, listen to music. But it's about looking after yourself. It's about valuing who you are. Um, and you have to. And it might sound selfish. I take myself away. If I'm feeling low, I say to my wife, we've got a bungalow, happens to be back up the airfield. If I'm feeling low, I'm like, I'm going up there. It's got a one and a half mile beach. I go up there. I, I, I go and run into the sea, quite fortunate. And um, oh, nature is the massive one as well. I say to men, uh, it was raining this morning. He went on a run. Oh, I didn't go. It was raining. You're an idiot. Get outside. Especially mm-hmm. if it's raining. You want to feel the tactile nature of, of you want to feel the tactile elements of nature on your skin. Okay. It's mm-hmm. what keeps us alive. We used to wake up in the morning. We used to leave our cave and go and hunt Buffalo. That was, that was very purposeful. Okay. Mm-hmm. I wasn't there at the time and you'd have to watch out for the saber tooth tiger. And when you came back, you know, Mrs. Tim, um, she had the fire ready to put the buffalo on and we cooked the buffalo and that's what we did. And it was purposeful. Look, I've gone out and got a buffalo. She, she claps you to mm-hmm. come back in. We don't do it anymore. We get in our cars, sit behind a desk, doing no meaningful work at all. Mm-hmm. None of that's meaningful. We know none of that's meaningful. And then we mm-hmm. come home and she says, how was your day at work today? And you're like, oh, same. Just, yeah. That's not living mm-hmm. a life, is it? Mm-hmm. No, yeah, you're talking about Maslow's hierarchy and I've been talking about this or thinking about it certainly a lot and, and have done a couple of podcasts talking about self-actualization and so on and how uh, in some ways, I was just talking about this with Ollie last week, um, about how Ed Stafford, this explorer guy, gets out there, nudes up, runs into the hills, stays there for two months, doesn't talk to anyone and just to see if he can. And I mean, this is bonkers to most people, right? But for some, somehow by taking him down himself down the layers of the hierarchy of needs to where food, water, shelter are the most important things in his life right then. He finds self-actualization, ironically. So when he's, he just kind of all that stuff, and it's a bit like getting into the airplane. None of that stuff matters anymore. You've got a job to do. You, your whole life is focused on that purpose, and you can forget about all your worries and the bills and the arguments and all the bullshit going on on the ground, and it's a very safe place for us in that way. And uh, so being able to orientate yourself within that hierarchy of needs, I think, and just chop yourself down a few layers can ultimately catapult you back to the top because when you're in nature, as you say, feeling um, just something simple, you know, being able to get out there, build a bloody fire, um, you know, feel the sand in your toes, all these eerie fairy things, but they're important because they reconnect us with kind of the, the fundamental nature of who we are as sort of, people inhabiting this planet with all these other living things in a dynamic environment. And uh, uh, there's a lot of solace to be found there. And uh, and I think that um, while Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's not some law of the universe, it's a model that was created by another person just thinking about this stuff. I think there's a lot of value for people when you can break it down in that way. And it makes sense, you know, it makes sense to think about how we sort of get so detached particularly in this day and age where life is so convenient for us in western society food and water and shelter all these things are at our fingertips we just don't give them a second thought so we consume ourselves with bullshit uh, that distracts us and uh, we've forgotten just what's important in life and as you say doing meaningless jobs which are only going to become more or less meaningful as time goes on and things become more automated and yeah it's um it's definitely important to connect with yourself and connect with what's important. And uh, yeah, it's good. I think people need a bit of encouragement, a bit of a kick up the backside from time to time. Yeah. 
So you're doing good yeah. work in that space. Thank you so much for your time. Our paths may cross for a beer or a cup of tea at some Absolutely. point in time. So, yeah. Absolutely. All right. Come to the West care. Country at all. Let me know. Yeah, sure. All right. Yeah, thanks, Tim. All right. See, See ya. Talk soon. Bye. Ciao. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email the Here and Now at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.